Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We'll be in verse 2 today, but I'm going to start in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Follow along with me as Paul writes. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the living God. Not too many years ago, Calvin Klein rebranded. They didn't change everything in their corporate structure, but they did change the target audience from which they would try to reach from their clothing line. Instead of high-end products and high-end fabrics, they now sought to reach a new, younger audience with cheaper products and with easier trademarks and with easier production skills they were going to reach a broader younger audience now it's one thing for calvin klein to do that a corporate company that we all probably are wearing right now (laughs) some clothing article of it but it's another when the church does that when they take the idea of worship to god and make it worship for self. When the church can't be differentiated from a concert, or where it can't be differentiated from Habitat for Humanity, where the church can't be told the difference between a community center and a Christian church, where you don't know the difference between a church nonprofit organization or those who set up themselves as an LLC to pass scandalized profits through the business and not personally harm themselves in their ministry. Where the church lavishly brings upon itself a lifestyle that is not like the lifestyle we see in the biblical leaders of the New Testament. When the church becomes a franchise of worship where they study consumeristic behavioral therapy or where they understand the analyzation of the market trends and they try to reach and God would use these things, he gave them to us in general revelation where God would understand us because of our wisdom and knowledge 
I don't know if they've read Romans 11, 33 through 36, but I have. And I know the beloved of Santan Bible Church has. And we will not become a church that changes our target audience to the consumer, but we will keep it the audience who is our God in our worship. That's where we bow our knees to. We don't bow our knees to men. We don't bow our knees to practices. We don't bow our knees to pragmatism. We bow our knees to the one true God, Yahweh, because he is the great I am. So how do we come in this world as Santan Bible Church with all of the nonsense going on, with all the sound, with all the, hey, it's working for them, they're growing. How do we come into that as Santan Bible Church and keep this pure and keep it true? How do we prove to be those who worship God for who he is? And how do we be those who worship God as a living sacrifice because we want to do his desires in our lives according to his will and prove to be faithful in that as our spiritual service that's living? How do we do that? Well, we do that according to Romans 2, and there are two things in particular, two principles that Paul specifically teaches us. The first in Romans 12, 2, verse A, don't be conformed to the patterns of this age. By the way, the title of this is the don'ts and the do's of worship. And the second point we want to be living as Christians in the New Testament is do be transformed by the Spirit, the new Spirit in you. And you'll see that in the second verse. But we'll start with don't be conformed to the patterns of this age. Look with me again at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the first section, and do not be conformed to this world. And it's an emphatic conjunction tying us back to verse 1. That idea that was in verse 1 was that idea of the address to the brethren, the address to the Christians, therefore I urge you. He's saying, I come alongside you. I command you, I exhort you, I comfort you in this. I demand this from you because you are a, a brethren, one who is a Christian. He establishes that the Spirit is in you. He says, by the mercies of God, you're one who has received mercies already. So the context here is that for the believer to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable. That same idea that was in Le uh, Leviticus chapter 22 that we read for our scripture reading today. The idea that we have here is which is your spiritual, your logican. It's literally the English word for logical worship. It would be logical in our day for Christians to desire God's will. Be logical for Christians to not be conformed to the world in our practices, in our behavior, and in our doctrine. It would be logical for us to come here and want to know what God's word says about true worship. It would be illogical to bring in corporate strategies and structures, which, by the way, remember, I have six years in corporate finance. I know those things. I know the temptation to want to say, hey, I remember what we did one time in the company I worked for, and maybe that would be helpful here. But I'll tell you, there's one thing that I'm constantly reminded of, that it's not logical to bring the world into the church. 
Because I'm one who's have received the mercy already. I'm one who has read Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. It doesn't say of man. How unsearchable. I mean, I can never search enough the scriptures, all that he gives us by precept and command, all that we can abide by in obedience of worship. And we have to remember what has brought us to this point in chapter 12 of Romans. We have just had a theological treatise by the Apostle Paul of the doctrine of justification. The need for justification in the first few chapters because of our depraved mind, our reprobate mind that even gives into a world that says homosexuality is legal and conversion is illegal. We have been given the treatise that not only is there a need for the justification and for righteousness of believers, but there is a way for righteousness and justification through Christ and not by any of our works. And we have been given a treatise by the Apostle Paul of what there is in the righteousness and need for justification in Israel. That them too, not born by the flesh or the blood, but by the Spirit of God, John 1, 12 through 13. There's a need for them as well. And grafting in together, we come into the picture in application of that justification from chapter 12 to chapter 16. As New Testament believers, we now understand that we're grafted in to this application of do not be conformed, but be transformed. This word conformed here is the idea of our outward appearance. The idea of what we're doing is characterized by the world more than it's characterized by God. Our social media posts would reflect a person who's not saved more than it would reflect a person who's saved. The way we spend money would be likewise. The way that we, the way that we think and talk, the way we spend our time, all of it is characterized the same way we see the world doing it, but not the way a Christian should do it. It's assimilating to the world in behavior or social behavior. It's conceived of becoming shaped or molded to the certain patterns of this age. It's a chameleon. We change colors based off what room we're in. We compartmentalize. Here I'm the worker. And here I'm the Christian on Sundays at 10 a.m. And here I'm the athlete. And here I'm the social media influencer. And here I'm the whatever fill in the blank. Because when I'm here, I'm not thinking of up there. Are you conformed to a pattern of this world? Are you molded, formed, modeling something that's not biblical? Are you shaping your behavior and standards to what's the standard of this age? Are you regressing and lapsing in your behavior back into the ways of the world? This passage is (laughs) so pertinent to myself Because I have to constantly ask myself what, not if I have, but what have I conformed myself to? And I know you feel that weight as believers as well. Man, there are not many days when I get the idea of 1 Peter 1.14, the other passage that uses this, of an obedient child. I think of myself as disobedient and conformed to the world. It says this in 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children do not be conformed, to the former lusts which you were in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself 
also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If our expectation is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the worship that he gave on this side of heaven was nothing short of our example and our aim. Our liberty is not for licentiousness. Our liberty is for God's worship. We have to understand what it means to not be conformed to this world. It's a dative of reference. It's referencing our object of affection. What is our affection? It's often known by the external expression of our life and our behavior and our social patterns and our cognitive thoughts. And this word is not cosmos. It's not the world, generally. It's aeon. It's the idea that the aeon is in opposition to God. Who's in charge of this world? Who controls the values, the history, the beliefs, the moral systems? It's guys like Matt Dillenhuti who believe in secular moralism, that we've learned so much from our mistakes. Have we really? We've learned so much from our past as a society and our ethical system of law and morality that, hey, guess what? We're doing better now. Our secular moralism is better than what God has to offer. Worship us, the creation, not God, the creator. But who's in charge of all of that thought? Who's in charge of all of the existentialism that exists today where we overemphasize personal feelings and personal self-esteem rather than the esteem of God, sola Deo Gloria? Who's in charge of that? Well, Satan himself. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says the God... The appropriate definition of this would be the world, the age, the aeon. He's talking about Satan. Has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light. They may not be exposed to truth. Let the light shine on them of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. It's all about God. It's not all about us. And coming from a guy who played an individual sport, I understand the glory of man. I understand what it's like to pursue that and want everybody's attention. Even in my pursuit of ministry, the idea of being the person who the attention was directed to was something I had to fight. I want to direct your attention to the word of God, to the worship of God, because that's what it's all about. Who's in charge? Satan. Who's in charge of the wisdom that supposedly comes from this world? Fools. Fools. 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no man deceive himself, if any man you think that he is wise in this age, aeon. He must become foolish so that he may become wise. The fools of this world say that their wisdom is wisdom, but the wise of this world become humble. We've read this before, and I want to read it again. I want to just make sure we as a church are aware of what's going on. And in Canada, what hurt our beloved brother, James Coates, who was not allowed to come to the Shepherds Conference to speak and exhort us as believers in how to combat this world that is wanting you to conform. The bill that was passed, Bill C-4 in Canada in chapter 24, was a bill against the biblical view of the doctrine of conversion, specifically based off of the book of Romans, where we see so much about the doctrine of justification and being converted. 
They say this in Bill C-4, chapter 24, unanimously agreed upon by the governing bodies of Canada. I quote, Whereas conversion therapy, and by the way, this means biblical counseling. This means you talking to your son. This means our church preaching in the pulpit. This means us being on YouTube and expressing public thought of biblical theology. Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the person who are subjected to it. I didn't know somebody could be harmed by being regenerated. (laughs) Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society. I didn't know the society could be more harmed by biblical salt and light. Among other things, it is based on the propagates myths. Wow. What an accusation against our creator and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgendered identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth, the God-given sex assigned, are to be preferred over sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. The problem here is preference. And preference isn't God's principle. And whereas in light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provisions of conversion therapy. Okay, so it's allowed to discourage and denounce principles that are in the Bible, but when the Bible denounces principles that are in the world, it's got to be banned and illegal. Do you want these as your heroes? These people run corporations. These people run governments. But God looks at them and laughs and mocks. Psalm 2. Because in our age, in our understanding of this world and what the world is conforming to, our age is trying to legalize sin and criminalize righteousness. Well, I stand and open the book of Romans and I let it fly. Because this is my worship. I open it, I preach it, and I live it, and I don't give two cents to what the world has to offer when it talks about this. This is God's domain. I obey God rather than man. Can we say amen? Well, how does this creep into the church and conforming? Because it's creeped into my life as I've surveyed my life this week. It creeps in religiously. When we conform our view of thinking like the way the world views things and thinks and makes decisions and understands how God would be directing them, it's like when we trust non-believers' advice for biblical decisions. Done that before? (laughs) When we think what works for others will work for us. When we fall into the existential ideas of this age, allowing our feelings to guide our decisions. When we trust our gut without the input of biblical principles. When we test God like the story of Gideon in Judges 6, but not realizing that this wasn't perceptive for us. This was actually God giving that to Gideon in a specific context. And That kind of fleecing should never be at the direction of us, but only at the direction of God himself as he brings it. When we ask for a sign and test God, when we don't allow situations where we have no answers and we need to wait and stretch our faith 
instead of demand an answer. When we ignore biblical methods of discernment, when we use Scripture out of context, when biblical interpretation becomes subject to our interpretation of it, presupposition is not hermeneutics. It starts there, and then, like we say again, I can't repeat this enough, but I love saying it. (laughs) We start with our presuppositions of what we think a passage is, and then we go into the historical and contextual and literary analysis to understand what it meant to them and their structure of language. And then we understand again the words that are being used here. We see world. Oh, that's the world. It's used all over the New Testament. There's multiple words for world in the New Testament. And then as we're going to see here, a very beautiful understanding of words that are compounded. The beginning of it means something similar to an English word. And then we take that and we look at the grammar. Is this a command? Is this an indicative? Is it factual? Or is it telling us to act and behave a certain way? And then we take those and we wrestle with difficult doctrines. We don't come to a place and say, hey, there's good men on both sides. We wrestle with it. We generate a pros and cons list, and we make sure our pros are the best that are grammatical. And then we organize it in a couple points with some stories and illustrations (laughs) to make it easy for you to understand so that you don't have to study 20 to 30 hours a week and that you can go and live it and not be conformed. We don't take scripture out of context. Let me tell you some scriptures that were taken out of context by pastors that are living today. One pastor said, the Bible says, store up treasures in heaven. He never said you couldn't access those treasures today. Well, let me tell you, that's heresy. Please don't buy into it. Another one said, it's so hard to go to hell because you'd have to deny the love of God and who would do that? Let me tell you one thing. There's millions of people. There's thousands of Christians. And there are hundreds, thousands maybe, of pastors (laughs) who are running a thousand miles an hour in the direction of hell with a smile on their face and luxury in their purse. One man said, church isn't for Christians. Oh, I didn't know. (laughs) We're here to save people. That may be true. There may be non-believers sitting here today. But the ecclesia, the church, the ones called out of society, called out of conforming to the world, and called into transforming to Scripture, transforming to your spiritual renewal every day, is gathering here today because we need to live it out in the world tomorrow. The world also lets the children run the family. You conform to that too much, beloved? Have you let your children choose the church you go to? Well, they have more friends here. They're able to find people that really connect with them. I've seen people follow that logic, that logicon, that spiritual service of worship, and guess what? The children didn't stay in the church. Not always, but in general, you lead your family's men. You start speaking up. Direct your family in spiritual living service of worship. 
Don't let the world do it, because the world will. They've got their eyes, they've got their screens, they've got their words into your family. This happened in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul's addressing Timothy as he sends him out to Ephesus. The church was conforming. Different doctrines were going around. Different doctrines. Wow. I wonder where those doctrines came from. Well, they came from those who wanted to show a sense of godliness, 1 Timothy 6. It looks godly. It smiles. It's shiny. It's even growing. And it's as wide as the gates of hell. Because their target audience is their selfish appetites. Maybe money, maybe prestige, maybe fame, maybe family, but it's not solely Deo Gloria. Their mission statements are for territory and turf. They take competitive market analysis into their discipleship. They emphasize Selfish motives of expression and feeling greater than the expression and feeling of God's desire for our soul devotion. This isn't worship. This is conforming to the world. The worship of God isn't about the territory and turf on the outside. It's about God having access to the territory and turf on the inside of your heart. Are we, beloved, conforming to worldly practices of worship, branding it as Christianity and as church. The world emasculates male leadership, it praises reprobation and depravity, and it tells you that truth is a lie and sin is the truth. We must never conform to this. Yes, it creeps in, but let's keep it in check. Because we also have what we're to do to prove our worship according to what God desires in verse 12b. What are we to do? We're to be transformed, point two, by the new spirit in you. Let me read Romans 12, verse 2 again. But, very important, adversative conjunction. It's an adversary to conforming it's antagonistic to conforming it's an enemy of conforming it's a direction that causes you to battle against the conforming but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect but be transformed this idea here of transformed is the idea of metamorpho, metamorphosis. Instead of the chameleon that conforms to the world, you're metamorphosing into a new creature. Inwardly, the metamorphosis of your regeneration of your heart has reflected upon its expression in outward Christianity. It's an invisible process that happens for all of us. It's being transformed from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And there, actually, transformed is using the indicative, which is very interesting, factual. It's factual that this is happening for Christians. Maybe the reason why some churches aren't transforming is because the fact of the matter is that they're not regenerated in the first place. Leaders, 
or the attendees. But the facts of a Christian is the facts that they are being transformed. Here it's using the command, go do it. Continually do it. You need to fight what was going on in the day of this time in the context of Rome, which was Hellenistic mysticism. Guess where they went to be transformed? Visions. Or making up stories about how God has communicated to them. Instead, we're to progressively work this out in righteousness, in biblical truth. Man understands as a Christian that he cannot bring the change by his own activity, but it's affected by the Holy Spirit in you. It's not autonomous. It's not mystical. It's the reality of how salvation works in your life. It's determinative of a Christian. He contrasts here two worldviews that Christians have. Two worldviews, meta, the first part of that transformed word, means to change. Metaphysics, but that word of meta, change, is the same root of the word in regeneration, meta, noia. The idea of repentance, I mean, sorry, repentance, in Acts 2.38. Meta, noia, change your mind about who you view God is and how you view who you are. You think yourself as wise, become a fool. You think yourself as great of finding another way, like God pleases to serve your cognitive ability. You got to become lowly. Your change of mind as a Christian, your metanoia, your repentance, leads to your metamorpho, the changing of the inward activity and direction of your worship. The worldview of the redeemed is that Christians no longer stand in this age, but stand in the age to come. They cannot give themselves the form of this world and say they represent the form of God. The the Spirit is in you, and it's working, or is it? The responsibility of the Christian is to continue the initial change to a continual change of your life. Of what people view you as, what you have become is still becoming in sanctification. Is your repentance, your metanoia, proving active in your continual mind transformation, your metamorphing? Is your metanoia metamorphing? That's what we need, and how do we do that? How does that happen as a Christian who constantly has screen access to the world and constantly sees not only in Canada things happening, but with Ordinance 3121 in West Lafayette that was denied but will come up again with conversion therapy? How do we constantly renew our mind or constantly become transformed? We do it by renewing our mind. Look again at verse 12. By the renewing of your mind. Renewing is that word anakinosis. It's new again and again and again and again. It's spiritual rebirth as a Christian, not only initially but also inevitably. It's renewing the thoughts and intentions and the will of your life to conform them 
not to the world, but transfer them to the God that you worship. We, as Christians, constantly need to be shown by our moral conduct that it's not representative of the new age, but it's representative of our new birth. The inward renewal is one that is kingdom-minded. We understand the reason why this is so prevalent in the church today is because the church is filled, possibly, and when I say church, not Santan Bible Church, I'm saying Big Eva, Big Evangelicalism, church in general. The churches are filled with people who have never been regenerated or repented in the first place, never changed their mind, meta, never metanoid. And as a result of that, we have the world in the church. But then there's also the other factual uh, part of this is that the idea that us as Christians would be okay with the idea of being immature, sipping on mama's milk for our whole life. But we're not okay with continually changing our mind, with transforming it. What's this fly doing here? <laughs> we have to continually repositioning ourselves. we got to be like iPhone updates Take the upgrades. We need software updates as Christians. We understand that software updates are needed. Many of you guys work in the microchip Silicon Valley that Arizona has become. Software updates demand newer and improved CPUs. Older and outdated processes don't process information as quickly and as efficient as new processors. So why are old, outdated Christians trying to reprocess in the new church? We shouldn't try to make church new. We should make our mind new because nothing's new to God. It's the idea that started, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago in tennis where they started restringing tennis rackets that weren't even broken. <laughs> if you notice this, if you watch professional tennis, every six games, pros change their racket. The strings haven't broken but they want the racket to its truest tension. They string the tension of the main string at 60 pounds or so. They string the cross at 45 pounds or so. But as the environment of playing outside comes on the strings, and as the ball hits the strings and changes it, and as it hits not always in the center, but sometimes at the top and the wide and the middle, the strings start to morph and conform into the climate of that match. And then the pro says every six games, I want new strings. I want strings that are going to reflect the new or the, the old, sorry, true tension that I can trust on, where when I hit it, I know it's going to do this. Like iPhone updates and updated CPUs and restrung tennis rackets that aren't broken, we need to make sure we're new again. Because we might be more useful as a new again Christian. Not that we're new again in our initial repentance or regeneration. That never has to change. But that in our inevitable repentance, in our inevitable renewal, we understand we're reliant upon a new mind. Again and again and again and again. We need new 
and improved, superior worship based off of what has already existed, not based off of what secular moralism think they've figured out and, you know, because of New Age theology. Renewed to a true knowledge, Colossians 3.10 says. How would our decision-making, how would our life, how would our worship look if every one of us here today was new again every morning? Biblical principles applied. A right view of God on high. Well, we do that because we know that we want to do the so that. What's this all about? Well, in verse 12, it continues on and says, this is all about proving what the will of God is within the brackets of spiritual worship. Have you proved that you have endured the test of not conforming to the world, but transforming your mind to God's will? We're put to the test of what God's will is. We put into discovery an examination process that tests just like gold is tested for its purity and trueness, we are tested as Christians in our transformation or our conforming to the world that we know what the will of God is. Are we self-examined as those who prove the will of God? Are we self-examined as those who are running the race, who are tested, James 1.3, in our faith of endurance? Do we know that this is for God's desire, will of God there, thelema, where we get the English word thelma from? It's what God desires, what he intends, what he wishes for your life, his high standard for making decisions and actions for worship. It's the love that a Christian is enabled to exercise. It's a privilege. It's what God desires and not what you desire. One of the biggest reasons why self-esteem is not to be counted as something that is valid is because it's all about self. Who cares about self-esteem? Who cares now about esteeming God? Isaiah 6. When you esteem God, then God can esteem you. He can take the lowly and lift you up. But this is all done for God's desire, for God's will. And it'll be in conjunction It'll be logically combined, this is a copulative conjunction, and logically combined with these three things that follow. First, is good. If it's God's will, it'll be good. It'll meet high standards is the idea. It'll be good moral actions and decisions. It will bear good fruit and good deeds. It'll enable you to love people with goodness and kindness. It'll also logically be combined with what is acceptable. That idea that Leviticus 22 had, what God sees as acceptable, not what this world sees as acceptable, but what God sees as acceptable. There's some commercials going on now about what the world views as acceptable to God. It's in the form of He Gets Us. You guys seen this? Commercials about He Gets Us. Turns out, quite a few billionaires got together. They had in mind what was acceptable for God, that our society would understand that God really gets us. It may be true in a sense, 
but should we conform to this idea? Here's from their website. Have you experienced frustration, sorrow, temptation? So has Jesus. Justin, uh, Jesus understood, not Justin, but Jesus, <laughs> understood what life was like for people in his day. It kind of sounds a little bit like his age, especially for the marginalized. He was drawn to those on the fringes because he was one too, an immigrant, homeless, and arrested. Bullied, through it all, Jesus welcomed outcasts, stood up for women, hung out with the troublemakers, and even befriended enemies. He did it because his radical love, his empathy, and acceptance for all of us. The problem with this acceptance is it sounds a lot like the world's version of unbiblical tolerance. In fact, they even admit to it later. I quote again from hegetsus.com, Given today's increasing divisive and mean-spirited world, we're all seeking something better. What if Jesus is the example we're searching for? Got to be discerning here because some of this sounds really catchy. Jesus' radical compassion stands in stark contrast to all current hate and intolerance, which is why his teachings, the way he lived, and what he stood for still provide such an inspiration today. But does God really care, and end quote, does God really care about acceptance? What's acceptable according to him and not us? He gets to say what is acceptable. The problem with he gets us is the idea that he gets us without transforming. He gets us without repenting. He gets us without metanoia. He gets us with no need for metamorphosis. He says, just stay as you are he gets us does this get you angry does it get you fired up not hateful for the person or the people but i'm not going to tolerate what god doesn't tolerate in fact he can't be even in the presence of this ideology of this age because it's not acceptable to him i was going to take you if i had time to john 6 but the idea here is that they viewed God's will as one that would bring him as a king physically and not as a king spiritually. It was a people that as the crowd gathered and they saw the miracles and the signs, that they saw something flashy, something big, something with a target audience. But God's target audience became thinner and thinner. Because as he turned back to the crowd, he basically, in effect, said this, are you here for the bread, or are you here for the bread of life? And it says in John 6, 66, that many withdrew and were no longer walking. I wonder if this message right here that I'm giving today would stand in many pulpits. Would I be invited back? Who cares? <laughs> I praise God for Santan Bible Church, because you care. We want this, don't we? We want to be acceptable to God. We understand that His acceptance is more important than our acceptance. And once we praise and worship His acceptance, we become more blessed as a believer, because we bow on our knees. We don't make the world and God bow on His knees for us. Not only is it good and is it acceptable, but it's perfect. Okay, me and you can't be perfect, but the idea here is this, that what we bring before the Lord involves a life without moral blemish. 
a life without defect, a life of maturity, of completeness. It's that idea in Leviticus chapter 22, verse 17 through 20. I want to just take you there for a moment because it's worth going back and looking at. By the way, if you want one word for the book of holiness, the one word is holy. Or sorry, the book of holiness, the book of Leviticus. The one word is holiness. It's one of those times where my mind goes faster than my mouth. (laughs) You guys are starting to know me. (laughs) Here, look at this. Verse 19, for you to be accepted, it must be male without defect. From the cattle, the sheep, or the goats, whatever has a defect, you should not offer it, for it will not be accepted for you. You want to know why? Look at verse 33. This is why. This is enough for you to know why it's important to bring good and acceptable and perfect worship to God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God? I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. His name is enough. His name is enough for your worship to be perfect. His name is enough for you to understand that in the garden there was a defect. Not only a biblical masculinity, but biblical femininity. And then from that moment, there was a demand of perfection, but mankind didn't understand that demand. Instead, they weren't satisfied with what God desires. They desired something else. They desired a human king. They thought that human king could bring them an acceptable worship to God. And that human king failed, and then it turned into two kingdoms, and then it turned into a bunch of kingdoms, and the kingdoms could not tolerate what God wanted to tolerate. They wanted more. They wanted to conform to the world. They didn't want to transform to God's ways. They wanted to turn worship into money changing. They wanted to turn worship into strange fire. They wanted to turn giving into selfish motive. They wanted to turn doctrine into a means for gain, but they didn't want to turn it into soli deo gloria, the worship of God alone. And as you and I come into this, we understand not only did they get it wrong, but we can get it wrong too as Christians in churches. But as we go to a book like Romans, we understand that there's a need for righteousness, that me and you without God are morally and doctrinally reprobate that we're depraved in our mind, that we're in need of one who would atone for us, would be an unblemished sacrifice for us, that we understand that it was demanded that God consumed Christ with his wrath for our payment for sin so that we could inherit the righteousness of God in him. But not only that, so that you and I could not stop worship there because what was a dead sacrifice before now becomes a living sacrifice in you and I as we live out the gospel in worship. And if you're not a Christian, you're not going to worship truly. You're going to continue to conform. But today, I call you to repent and to believe because your metanoia needs to start before your metamorphosis continues. Amen.